Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Yo. Eric Ostrich. Howdy. And today, we are joined with our special guest, Chris Keithley. Hey, how's it going? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Uh, so Chris, I'm glad you can make it on. Uh, so I was at ElixirConf and I just happened to be sitting at a table having breakfast and Chris comes over and sits down and he's having breakfast. And like that is just one of these benefits that you get from going to conferences, right? You're just talking with people. And so we start talking about the presentation he's about to give. And he gives this awesome presentation. So we want to talk about some of the things that he brought up in there. I, I kind of design, describe it as designed by contract and some of the things he's uh, developed and, and been talking about and working on there. But before we jump into that, maybe you can just give a little intro to yourself, who you work for, what you do, uh, just in case people aren't familiar with you. Yeah, sure. So uh, like I said, I'm Chris. I work at a company called Bleacher Report. Uh, I've been doing Elixir for, I don't know, I've lost track at this point, um, long enough, I guess. And I mostly work on like just different backend systems. Uh, I made a joke the other day that I'm, I'm currently at 373 days without JavaScript. Like that's the last time I've written any HTML, JavaScript, or CSS. So we're just going to keep that number rolling. Uh, mostly work on backend stuff, uh, tuning services, speeding things up. Where I would do a lot of work with Kafka and other like streaming systems, uh, and that's kind of like where my my focus is these days. Nice. And we've had you on the podcast now. I was checking; it's been two previous times, episode three and episode forty. So we're glad to have you back. Glad we haven't. Uh, you know, you should also mention that you do have your own podcast. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I. Uh, I'm a part of a, a different podcast called Elixir Outlaws. It's just uh, me, um, Amos, and Anna, and we just shuck and jive and just chat about stuff. And sometimes it's about Elixir, and <laughs> occasionally it's about Elixir. Uh, it's Elixir adjacent, at least, mostly just us chatting. Well, so one of the things you uh, presented on uh, was this idea of designing by contract and just kind of what that means and in a broader sense. And I really encourage people to check out uh, the talk. The videos went live very like the same day as the presentations. So that is in the show notes. Uh, so I loved how you kind of built up the, the idea, the topic, and you kind of uh, brought it through and then started to build on each topic. And you did an awesome job presenting is all I'm saying. And so I encourage people to check it out. Uh, so I did want to dig in a little bit deeper because one of the things you mentioned was your dislike for dialyzer and and maybe that may have been a factor in creating this library called norm so i'd love to kind of hear about that and and maybe kind of what some of your feelings are on uh dialyzer and and what you it's not doing for you yeah for sure so i think in a general sense i dislike 
all type systems have costs. Every type algebra has a cost associated with it. They also have benefits, right? Like I made a joke about this in the, uh, in the presentation as well, but it's like, you know, saying that type systems don't have benefits is just tacitly sort of wrong. Like you, that's an indefensible position to take because um, they do, they do have benefits. I think what often gets overlooked is the fact that those type systems also have costs. Uh, and they're not, and I, and I don't think they have costs in the sense that, well, I can use like my move fast and break things language early on, but then, you know, later on I have to switch this boring typed language, but then everything will work. Like that's, that's not how I see it. You know, I don't see it in the sort of like, you can move fast uh, kind of mentality, which I think a lot of people do associate with like dynamic languages and the power of dynamic languages. To me, the costs associated with type systems are the fact that they take, by and large, most type algebras, not all, but a lot of type algebras. And a lot of the type algebras that people like, you know, like the Haskell ML-based type algebras, those are the ones that like get people kind of going about types. And I think those have extreme amounts of cost. And they have costs over a very extended period of time, right? Like as you're growing a system, as you're building a system that's continually getting better and better, uh, doing more things, those type algebras force a lot of costs on you. And they do that because they take the majority of changes that you're going to make in your system, which ought to be growth only changes, like in the sense that you're adding more to the system you're allowing the system to do more, to be more expressive, or you're weakening requirements of callers. So you, if you have a function that required like A, B, and C before, but now it only requires A and B, well, that's a weakening of that restriction. That's actually a growth, right? That's a good thing. Um, we want to be more, uh, we want to be less rest uh, restrictive uh, in terms of what we accept in systems. Those sorts of type algebras though, have this like really nasty property where they enforce uh, backwards all of those growth only changes and they turn them into breaking changes. They mean, it means that like everything that uses that function is now wrong. And I think people see that as a benefit a lot of times, or they've like internalized it as a benefit, but I actually don't think it is one. And I don't think like, like the, cause the alternative is like, well, what if it wasn't, what if it just like, wasn't a breaking change? Like, and some type algebras do actually get this right. Like um, uh, TypeScript actually is a, a type algebra that actually kind of gets this right. Like it allows for those kinds of like growth changes because it supports like proper unions and that kind of stuff. And, you know, some algebras are better or worse at this. Haskell is actually pretty okay at this, although it has problems like maybe, like maybe it's like not a good choice most of the time. There are better ways to express what people often express with result types or with maybe types. And, you know, and then you've got type algebras like Rust's, which is awful. Like it's awful to work in because it forces all these like backwards incompatibility changes. If you change anything, like any like small thing, if you like figure out a better way to express a problem, well, now you're like rewriting everything that used it unless you got it right the first time, which is just not tenable. Like that's not tenable to me. So all those type algebras have drawbacks and dialyzer has drawbacks um, and dialyzer has serious drawbacks when it comes to elixir the big ones are are the obvious which are like it takes forever to run and you know and it's like you can cook an egg on your box while it's building the plt i actually don't see those as that that big a deal because you know like whatever like you're asking the computer to do work for you that's fine like that's what computers are for they do work i do think like that's obnoxious and the ergonomics of dialyzer are really crappy and so that that inhibits its ability that inhibits its usefulness that definitely like adds up. But I also think that it's just very weak. It doesn't 
tell you enough. And it doesn't tell you enough, especially in Elixir. It's actually better in Erlang because um, it can infer more. We actually lose out on a lot of that inference because we're talking in this other language. And it also like still doesn't understand protocols. And like it still like has these other weird issues. And like every time you bump a version, like the thing is wrong again. And like it, it, it has to like spin through all your dependencies and then and sometimes it doesn't find stuff, even if you're running Dialyzer, it won't find stuff until someone uses your library. And like, it just has all these weird ergonomics problems to the point where I actually just don't think it's worth it. Uh, like, it, because and the other thing is like, it doesn't give you enough benefit uh, for that cost. And it doesn't really even start to give you benefits until you do all of it. Like until your system uses Dialyzer from end to end, like it doesn't do enough for you. Like it doesn't, you can't just throw it in there and get benefit out of it. And so I've just kind of given up on it. Like I get it. It's, it's cool tech. Like, um, I mean, I understand that people like it and if you like it and it's working for you, go for it. But like, it's not working for me. So that was certainly a part of it. The other problem is like, it does, it still doesn't allow you to express enough in terms of like, it, there's no type system in the world that actually allows me to express the kinds of like properties that I care about in my system. Like uh, the, the go-to example I use still is, is commutivity. Like there's no type system in the world that can tell you if, if an operation is commutative, right? Like we might get there one day. That, that's probably like somebody is working on that somewhere, right? And it's probably all the Idris people, but like we're not there yet. And, you know, to some degree, it's like, I'm also not going to go rewrite all my code that is working in Elixir without these things <laughs> to do to gain those benefits, uh, and so it's it, to some degree, it's a little bit like throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, when it comes to dialyzer. But I'm just I'm just sort of over it. You didn't like that baby anyway. <laughs> it's an ugly baby is the thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it truly was brought in after the fact. It wasn't like built right into uh, Erlang as it was being constructed. So, yes, it is kind of like, let's see what uh, additional checks and guarantees we can provide after the fact. So, mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, so I would love to hear then kind of what. So I got a little bit of mo uh, motivation there for the dissatisfaction with the existing solutions. So what kind of prompted you to say, well, Norm, I have this idea for this library and what is Norm trying to solve? I guess maybe you can just kind of give a little intro to what this library is and its, its aim. Yeah, for sure. So Norm has, Norm's library I've been working on for a long time. It's designed to solve some of the problems of Dialyzer. Um, but it's very much designed to solve the problems that I deal with at my job, um, which is like my services take data. My Kafka consumers take data. We talk by sending data back and forth. Like that's a really good property of a lot of the systems that we're building these days. Like let's talk by sending data. Let's communicate with data. Um, but it turns out when you do that, you need some way to validate that data. Uh, on, on, at a, when, once your system gets big enough, you have to start doing that because the mental overhead of trying to remember it all is really hard. Uh, and that's true for inner service dependencies and it's true inside of your system, like as your processes, as your gen services, whatever is communicating. I also wanted the benefit of being able to put these checks in place wherever I wanted them um, at any layer in the stack and have them be immediately valuable and I also wanted the system to be designed for extensibility and to encourage and to make growing a system uh, the default and make it very hard to break systems or at least make that not the default. Uh, and by break systems, I just mean like you, 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 you add restrictions or you do less than before. 
Um, those would be like breaking changes in an API. And so what the library does, is just a way to describe your data. It's a way to describe data like moving throughout your system. And you can use any arbitrary predicates that you want. Um, there's a single macro in the entire library and it's called spec and it takes any arbitrary predicate, which includes all the guard clauses. It includes anything you want to write, anything that may already exist in your code base. Uh, and you can turn it turn that into a spec, into a specification. And then once you've done that, you can compose it with all these sort of higher level things. Like I can say, I'm going to have tuples that return me these atoms or these data that conform to this specification. You can find that with like schemas and, and, and some other like uh, higher level stuff, which a schema just says, here's these keys. There are any arbitrary keys and they're going to conform to this thing. And you're going to, you know, the values are going to be this and you can pass in whatever you can sort of arbitrarily compose all this stuff. And once you've done all that, the really cool thing is it doesn't do anything. Like you can, you can define all that stuff and then it doesn't actually like impose any of it until you go and use it until you say specifically like, okay, here's the data I've got coming in and now conform it to this specification is that does this conform? Is this valid? And if it doesn't explain to me why that didn't like give me real errors back. Uh, and that was, that was like the, the main goal. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. So it sounds, it's kind of inspired by like, you know, it's called spec or per specification. You know, we have type specs that are, are used by Dialyzer. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like you're describing some of those types of things where you can say it returns a tuple that looks like this. Uh, but you're doing all this extra stuff, all these other features that are not something that type, type specs can do, like with guard clauses and just referencing code. That, that sounds pretty powerful. Uh, so how is that in, how do I then, as a user of norm, I've put a types or the, a specification on a function. Is it inside the function I say, does this data conform? And that's what triggers it to happen? Yeah, yeah, you can call it anywhere you want to. Um, this is a really cool thing. Like, you can use that stuff at the boundaries of your system. Like, for instance, like, um, right now, someone's building a plug API for this. So you can, in your controllers, you could say, here's the parameters I want. And then there's a plug that knows how to grab those parameters using the specification you've provided. Uh, and if they don't conform, it returns an error. Um, and so now, like, all their error handling is done in, by this, like, one plug um, and, spe and specifications. Not all, but, like, you the error handling for like input is done that way. Right. Um, so you can use it there. You know, we call it, uh, we use this stuff inside of our controller actions. For instance, like if I get some, you know, request body in, I can make sure it conforms and then return errors back or not, or pass it through or blow up or whatever I want to do. We also use it when we conform data coming back from external services. You know, if I call some downstream thing that's going to return me a user, I want to verify that it has an ID, that that, U, that that ID is a UUID, that it has an email address with a valid email, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and we'll actually do the, the conforming at that, at that layer as well. 
And you can use this, but you can also use it inside your gen servers. You can say like, this gen server is gonna have to have this type of data. And if it doesn't, blow it up because I'd rather crash and restart the gen server in a known good state. So that's kind of the benefit is it's completely ad hoc. You can use it wherever you want. And because of that, it's totally within your grasp to do, to build whatever thing that you want, whatever abstraction you want. So I know, or it sounded like you uh, are using this in at least one service within Bleacher Report. And I was just curious as to how that has, how you've experienced that as it's gone on, how, what kind of benefits have you seen just kind of as you experience that? Yeah, I mean, so we have one, uh, it's right now it's in place in like one and a half services, I'd say. The benefits are really, I mean, honestly, it feels really good. Like this is one of the first open source things I've built for me that I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like I love using this now. Uh, most of my other open source stuff, I'm like, ah, I got like half of this wrong. And like, you know, I feel bad about it, but I can't really fix it now because it's like sort of out there in the wild. This feels like really good. And because it immediately gives you these benefits, right? Like you immediately start to, it, it does all the things that, I mean, partially because I built it, like it does all the things that I want it to do. And it's every time that we've like run up against something, it's like that we think that we might have to extend the language or uh, add more to norm to be able to like provide. It actually turns out that all the stuff that we have in there already is like enough. Like we're like, oh, this feels, this is great. Like we can actually compose all the things we want to be able to compose this way. So that feels great. And we are using it to do things, like I said, like conform input validation, input values, uh, conform values coming back from other uh, services. Uh, but we also use it for like checking that the options you pass to the gen server start are right. You know, like you can really use this stuff anywhere because you can compose enough stuff that you can actually specify keyword lists. And so we'll pass a whole bunch of options to like gen servers and now we can conform those. And if they don't look right, we blow up and that way you know in development that you got it wrong and that kind of stuff. So yeah, we found a ton of uses for it. And there's some, it, Norm has some other capabilities that also make it really powerful once you start really adding this stuff in. So I had a, I had a question, which is, um, well, yeah, I guess my first one is, what, where do you see like the sweet spot for norm usage? Like say I'm, I have some code and I, I like it and I want to make sure it stays in the state that I like it. Uh, what's, the, what's the minimal amount of effort I need to put in to get, say, norm in there and, and helping me and where are the, the best first spots? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think um, if you have a known API, where you're like, I have to pass these things to this API, then that's a great place to start because you can sort of say like, here's the actual bits of data that I need. Uh, and you can be as granular or as um, coarse as you want with that specification. You know, for instance, like um, the, one of my examples is an RGB to hex converter where you take in integers and you give back a string. If you want to get really granular, you could say like, these are integers, they're all integers between zero and 255. And the string it returns, like Matt conforms to these things. Like you, you could build up all the predicates to specify that stuff. Or you could just say, these are integers and this is a string. And then you can start to like add those into your inputs and your outputs uh, and start to like ensure that you're actually doing all the right stuff. And that's a really easy place to do that. And that's, I think, the most natural places that this, that norm fits into people's stacks is like at the boundaries. Um, that's like where the most obvious benefits are. Uh, of, you know, I'm getting this, these like set of params in and I want to do something with them um, and make sure that they conform to these values. So those are the most obvious places. And I think that's where you'll really get like the most immediate benefit. And that's probably like the best place to start. 
Okay, so my corollary to that is, what's the uh, least intuitive way you've used it? Least intuitive? I don't know. That's a good question, too. I think it Pro is... probably not really a good question. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think, I think it, it's... It, Again, like um, using it to like specify the options you need to pass to a gen server, right? It's not an obvious thing to do because you now have to call this function to conform values. But it actually turns out that it was, it's been really helpful to be able to do that kind of stuff because, I mean, you just know. You know immediately like as you're doing development and as you're running tests and stuff like that if you like got the API right, which gets you to the same place as a lot of like the dialyzer stuff does, except this is immediate. Like you can do this in the REPL. And so... Like the feedback loop is much tighter, and so I think that that sort of usage usage is more surprising to people when they see it used in that way. But I actually think it's super beneficial. Yeah, I have not used it yet, but my uh, my middle model for it is essentially composable uh, assertions. Uh, I don't know if that's roughly right, but no, I think right. that's right. Yeah, and then um, yeah, and so then I think for for that probably just the immediate and not stack trace confusing feedback of what you goofed up. Uh, saves a lot of developer time. Yeah, I think so. So one of the, the places you said was a good fit is like on the boundaries. And we've talked in the uh, previously pre, uh, previous podcast where we've talked about uh, using change sets as a way of validating input coming in. How does this, is this, does this also, can it use change sets too? Or is this an alternative or kind of where do you see that? Yeah, I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that comes up a lot because people use ecto change sets a lot more than I do just for reasons. Um, but ecto chain sets are much more specific in their usage and like what they're doing, where norm is a much more general purpose thing because it allows you to sort of specify anything. Um, but because it's more general, like, it actually doesn't have some of the features that I think people like in change sets. The main thing, that, the main difference is that it's not going to do casting for you because right now, um, if you go all in on the change set thing, you know, Mostly what change sets people are using for is like light validation. And also I hate maps with strings in them. And so give me a map with an atom in it instead. Uh, that like tends to be a lot of what people are using change sets for, which I'm kind of like, yeah, but you yeah, like a function does that, but whatever. In any case, norm doesn't have any way to do that. And, the, and that's a conscious choice. We, do, we actually do differentiate between string keys and atom keys. That's, high, that's very intentional because it turns out like, in most of our work, in most of my work, I only deal in string keys. Um, I actually don't can do like the, the conversion back and forth that often. I just like leave it as string keys and I move on. Mostly because like the conversion isn't that useful to, to us. But uh, if you want to do that casting, that's sort of an unsolved problem in Norm right now. That's the main difference uh, Ecto chain sets are going to provide to you. And they can do that because they know they're always working in, in maps, essentially. They're always dealing with maps and structs, whereas we're dealing with anything. And so having an arbitrary way to cast is sort of an unsolved problem. I don't have a good pattern for that, largely because protocols are very weak abstractions. Like they don't let you say enough. Like Elixir's protocols just don't give you enough power to be able to sort of arbitrarily, like to be able to say like, I need to take in this type of data and output this other type of data. And here's how I do the conversion between those two things. And so we don't have any ability to say that yet. We might at some point, but that's the main benefit. But the, the flip side is that Norm's going to let you say more because you're not bounded by this like set of, I mean, it's actually a large set. Most of them are about databases, but whatever, uh, like of like 50 functions or whatever it is that like change sets have on them. And I think in general, like our ergonomics are nicer than having, there's like one of the change set functions. It's like arbitrary, like call a function and return errors or something like that. And you could use that to, to um, approximate what Norm is doing. 
only for maps and for structs though. Well, that's cool. I really do like the idea of uh, the gen server one, especially because you're saying, well, even if there is a slightly higher cost in validating this data, it is, uh, there's a lot of value in that. And it's something that's like, like particularly with the gen server, it starts up and maybe running for a period of time. It's not like I'm repeatedly calling this, uh, which does kind of bring me to my other question, which was in the presentation, you alluded to the potential like that doesn't exist currently, but like for maybe not having the checks run in a production environment. Well, you're referring to another library that I think you, maybe you could clarify that for me. But uh, is have you ever... Can, have you considered, you know, because some of these checks that I might choose to do, like maybe I'm like saying, yes, I want to validate that the user exists in the database and they're in this state, you know, which is maybe a valid check, uh, but it is a potentially higher cost check. So I just wonder if you can kind of talk about um, the, the costs there. Yeah, for sure. So that is a trade-off. Like any, you know, we're, we can't guarantee any sort of runtime constraints like like if you say compose or rather or rather conform with this like very long set of predicates and your predicates do side effects and like whatever else like we can't stop you from doing that so you're oh, beholden no. to that Predicates with side effects oh yeah yeah right so one of the, so norm um right now doesn't provide you any ability to say like don't do this in production and that's that's again sort of an intentional choice at the moment um because uh i think they're i think you just I don't know that that's like always what you should want. I think you kind of want to do these things um, in production all the time uh, and having them like only work in development. Like if you're calling this inside of your, you know, again, like your, your Phoenix controller or whatever, you don't necessarily want to turn those off because you want them on in production. Cause that's like part of your error handling flow. There's a second thing that I talked about in my talk, which is this whole notion of like design by contract. And uh, the real, real quick version of design by contract is that for every function that you have, you can specify preconditions and post conditions. Preconditions are things that ought to, that have to be true prior to calling the function and post conditions are things that have to be true after the function has been called. And you can really say whatever you want inside of those preconditions and post conditions. And you get access to, you know, like the, the variables that you're passing and the arguments you're passing in and the result that you're returning. And so you can say things like, you know, check before this function is called there, you shouldn't be a user in the database. And after the function is called, there ought to be. And those can be inside your preconditions and postconditions. And the way we do that right now is we annotate functions with those. Those, I am of the opinion that those would all, could all be stripped out. And so those sort of more expensive things that you want to check about your actual functions would be removed. Um, but, in, but that's, you know, I don't know that you would, uh, that, that's very specific. That's very specific to like the preconditions and postconditions. I think in terms of all the data specification stuff, like you probably just want to do that in production because it's probably not going to be that expensive unless you're doing really, really expensive predicates. And, and you could probably design a way to put that into a precondition or a postcondition and then have those be stripped out. Right now, Norm doesn't provide preconditions and postconditions. Um, that will likely change. And in fact, um, uh, Wojtek, uh, from Platform Attack is got really, really hype about all this stuff, uh, which is awesome. And so we've been emailing back and forth about a bunch of ideas about how to include those contracts, like the preconditions and postconditions into Norm itself. And because that will be able to like integrate really well, and it'll have a syntax that's very similar to like type specs uh, and spec declarations and stuff like that. And then we'll be able to like remove them at, 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 uh, for, for a production build, let's say. Um, and so then you'll be able to get around like those more expensive costs that you really only do want to check in development and test. 
Yeah, when I was listening to you talk about it, I was very intrigued at the possibility of sort of being able to sample in production. So say, you know, check every every 10 calls, actually check that they conform because I've worked on projects where throughput was like the holy grail and we must not do anything that we must, that we don't have to do. Uh, and so being able to put some kind of assertions in production and not have it be particularly expensive uh, struck me as really nice. So, yay. Yeah, there'll probably be some... They're probably, we'll probably land somewhere. A lot of people want um, to be able to use preconditions and postconditions as, well, especially preconditions as sort of like super powered guard clauses, which I, I totally get. I think at that point, like just do it in your function body. Like if you always want those on, just, you know, it's a function. You call it wherever you want. And that feels pretty good to me. So, so one of the other benefits I, I kind of got from your discussion about this was the ability for it to influence your testing. And like that you can even use this as uh, generating test data because you have these very specific, potentially very specific specifications. So like how, would, how does that uh, play in there? Right, yeah. So that's, that's a really, really cool benefit is all the preconditions and postconditions that you may write. Because you can really say anything. There are arbitrary predicates that you can, you know, do anything in, including side effects, right? Because it's just, that's, that's actually like, they're designed to be able to allow you to do that. And once you've done that, one of the really cool things is one, they're co-located with the actual like body of your code, which is rad because now you can kind of see it all. I, I also come from like C where we would use like pragmas and stuff to like remove test code out of like the, you know, like it, it's like what Rust does now, right? Like, like Rust puts his, you know, its unit tests, like by convention, uh, puts its unit tests in with like the module that defines the functions. And that's like an old holdover from, from that era. So like, I, I really like that kind of stuff. And, but yeah, the cool thing is that you can specify all that and then your tests are like written, like, like your unit, like a basic unit test is like written for you. It's done. And so if you want to actually explicitly test it, you can write a test that just calls the function. <laughs> like, like that's all you need to do. Like assert RGB to hex works and like it's done. The other cool thing is like now you're every time you use that function, you've now written another test for it. Like anytime you use that function in the rest of your code base, you just implicitly wrote a test. I love um, that so much. Right? Like that's awesome. Like it's done. Um, and that's really, really cool to me. And I think there's a lot of potential there for building systems that are more reliable, more robust, that can like validate that you didn't like induce a breaking change accidentally. I think that's a real benefit. Uh, and then the final thing that we allow you to do and that norm provides is uh, all of the predicates, all the specs, everything, um, you can turn into a, a, a generator and you can actually do generative testing with it. And there are costs to doing generative testing, namely it's slow, it uses a lot of CPU resources, all that kind of stuff. But um, just, just to clarify, you're, when you say generative testing, like, like, that's like property-based testing, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, property-based testing or generative testing. You know, so we give you a generator that you can then compose with anything else that you want because it's just uh, stream data generators. And now you can like more exhaustively test your, your function call. You, you, it's still not a proof, you know, like it's, it's still not TLA plus, like you, you're still not proving any that it's working, but you're getting a lot closer than if you were to like hand write all of the, uh, you know, however, however many thousand or million like, options there are uh, for this thing that, it, you know, that you, could that you could possibly return. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. 
One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. So that's a huge benefit as well. So if you really want to use those generators, you can just write like a property-based test around that. And again, there's cost to that. It's slower. Property-based testing is way slower than like a standard run-of-the-mill unit test. But like you're already kind of doing unit tests anyway. And so it's like if you, you, know, you can use these when they're useful. The other benefits like the generators are so useful in so many other contexts, right? Like if you are using this to, to specify your boundary layer, well, now you have a way to just like generate all the parameters that you could possibly call your controller action with. And so your, your, your test for your controller actions, like generate all parameters and call it with, you know, mint or HTT poison or whatever, like just call the function, see what happens. You can use them to, to spec out uh, downstream services. So if you're reliant on making a call to a downstream service, you now have stubs. Like the stub exists because you just generate the data that you would need that you could reasonably get from the downstream service and run it through your your code. Very cool. So you mentioned using uh, this like for talking to remote APIs, um, and like I've done a lot of integration with that, and like most of the time I only care about like I don't know a handful of keys out of the like twenty they send back. Um, if I write a spec for just the handful that I care about, will Norm just disregard the rest and yep. be fine? Cool. Yep. 100% just disregards the rest. Um, again, that's a super intentional decision because if we didn't do that, every, every change would be like a breaking change. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can't grow a system if you try to do it that way. Uh, and so, yeah, we, if you, any specification that you've made, any schema that you've defined, we only care about those keys and any other keys we just disregard. Totally fine. Perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it does turn out that there are a couple cases where you have to like if you're doing the flip if you're actually calling a downstream service sometimes those services are more fragile than yours because they're using a worse system or like they're you know written in java which has crappy uh like inference about json values or whatever you know like who knows oh man they suck i uh, you know i uh there's certain json parsers out there in the kotlin java ecosystem which are garbage <laughs> and i will and they will remain nameless uh, but they're real bad and you know, they'll blow up on that kind of stuff. And so there ought to probably be a way to do that and to specify ways to only send certain things and to validate that you're only sending certain things, um, which I haven't thought through all the implications of yet. I need some more hammock time on that one, but that, that will probably happen. And right now you can kind of, you know, norm is really is designed to allow you to reuse a lot of stuff. Like it wants you to reuse things as much as possible. And so we provide you ways of reusing schemas or subsets of schemas. Like there's a specific way to get a subset of a schema you've defined. So you don't need to define another one with like all the same stuff in it, um, but like just with less keys. And so you, you could use those sorts of things to kind of fake it. It sounds like Norm can uh, fit into a lot of different parts of the design of the whole project lifecycle, right? Like there's, you know, while I'm designing it, while it's in production, while it's in 
you know, so there's a maintenance phase, then there's like the testing, which is possibly part of the development. Like, is there a, a phase where you feel like it has the most benefit that you've seen personally? Um, that's tough to say. I am using it right now on all my other open source stuff, like all my new open source stuff that I've been working on um, has been using Norm as a default at this point. And that feels really good. Like that's another one of those things that like makes me feel happy inside. It's like, oh, this is useful now. Like I, it's really re like, it took me six months to like get the design right. And now like, I feel like I did it and like, it's actually paying off. Um, so that feels really good. The system we're using at work it existed, you know, before Norm was like a released thing. And I think we're seeing a bunch of benefits now from adding it. Like a lot of things are getting cleaned up. Uh, a lot of our error handling, a lot of our ad hoc specification of data is getting cleaned up. So that feels really good. But I kind of, I think that's like one of the benefits. I don't know. Like I, I don't really, I'm not claiming to be like a genius here or anything. Like I think I've stumbled into something that I think I got like kind of part of the core of this right. And uh, it's been way more useful in a lot more situations than I thought it would be. Um, or I guess I, I would say like, I hoped it would be this useful, but I never kind of believed that it would be. And now it is like, and I'm sort of seeing the benefit of that. And so, um, yeah, I kind of think like you can start dropping this in anywhere and you're going to start seeing benefits from it just because, I mean, you're now formalizing a more ad hoc thing. There's probably an overreach. There's probably like, if you do this way too much, um, there probably is a point where, you know, you, you've really created like a closed system that can't grow anymore. Um, I hope that's not the case, but I haven't done that yet. I haven't like gone through that process yet. So, uh, you know, I guess like remains to be seen uh, what the long tail is going to look like. I have a pretty strong tendency to overdo things. So once I start playing with it, I might let you know. All right. Well, so one of the things, um, it sounds interesting. Uh, one of the things I, I liked that you mentioned there is that, you know, as opposed to dialyzer where, you know, in order to start seeing the, the ongoing benefits of dialyzer, you kind of have to get your whole project running clean, which can be a major uh, hurdle. And it sounds like with Norm, it's something I could drop in now and just start sprinkling little bits and start getting benefit immediately. So that is really cool. And it sounds like you're having an awesome time. I'm glad you're, uh, you know, working with Wojtek and if other people in the community are interested in helping, what way would be best for them to help out or uh, give feedback? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, uh, a couple of people um, got really excited and have already started submitting like PRs, just like support more um, more stuff internally, asking a lot of like really interesting questions. So there's been some like good discussion on like the GitHub about this and that stuff. I really value that. Not everybody loves that kind of stuff. Not everybody loves getting issues on their, on their, on their open source work. I, I really like it. Um, and in as much as, you know, it's constructive and all that, but like, I really value that. So if people have thoughts about it, feel free to like send me an email or open uh, an issue and we can discuss sort of a, a more high level uh, topic about it. And otherwise like, yeah, if you use it and it, and it goes well or it doesn't go well. Like, let me know what went well and what doesn't, what didn't go well. And we'll try to like think through it more because I think there is, there's definitely still stuff in there that probably isn't right. Um, and just hasn't, you know, haven't, hasn't been uncovered yet. Let's so try it out. That's the answer. Well, why don't you let people know how they should best get in contact with you? Yeah. So probably, like I said, either GitHub in a GitHub issue, or if you just want to chat about some of this stuff, um, send me an email. Uh, I don't really, I'm not really on social media that much anymore. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure we can uh, like throw my email into yes, like show notes, or show notes. So yeah. yes, people can check that out. Cool. I did have one other question I wanted to, well, it's a, a comment really I wanted to kind of clarify something and we'll, we'll keep it short cause we're out of time. Uh, but kind of 
to set the record straight, on an earlier podcast, I had mentioned a story that influenced me in my earlier days of Elixir. And that was about this article about Bleacher Report replacing like 150 Rails servers with five Elixir servers. And that was, you know, to me, it was like very motivating and a powerful thing. And I kind of re kind of retold that story. And, you know, like there's, I, I kind of understand now that there may be like an internal joke among VR developers, like, like, oh yeah, five servers, you know? So I would love to kind of get a, a clarification. Was that ever true? And is that still true today? Well, it's definitely not true today. A hundred percent not true today. Yeah. I think when that story was told, like it was in a, <laughs> that story was really pushed in just like some random magazine, like online blog article too. That's the other funny bit. And, up. and when people, and internally, when people, when it went out, apparently people were like, well, no one's going to read this. So like, it won't matter anyway. Like they knew it was wrong, but <laughs> then they were like, no one's going to see it. So it doesn't matter. I believe that was potentially, it was true-ish for the one service that they were talking about at that point in time. Gotcha. And it was comparing like, the other bit was like, it was comparing like peak numbers to like average numbers. And, and so it's not exactly true. It's definitely not true today. We run way more than five servers. I think like my, one of my services runs more than five servers. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't know that it even held weight when it was said. <laughs> okay, well, well, thank you for uh, clarifying that and setting that straight. So we are out of time. We really appreciate you coming on. So let's move to picks real quick. Eric, do you have something to share? Sure. So uh, one of the, uh, I like to play a lot of tabletop games. And one of the games that I like to play is a uh, war game called uh, War Machine. So I'm holding up a little dude for you guys. But um, it's a bunch of miniatures. You pick a faction, uh, you paint up your armies, you put them together, uh, and then you play on the table with a with a, against your opponent, and you clash minds and whatnot. Um, and I think it's a it's a fun way to I don't know get away from the computer and still be like I don't know it's still it's like a different kind of thinking challenge. So yeah, that's that's from uh, Privateer Press. Uh, go look it up, War Machine. Nice for thinking without syntax errors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Norm is not validating all the input. <laughs> Josh, how about you? Yeah, so uh, I wanted to share this Unison programming language. So it describes itself as a modern, statically typed, purely functional language similar to Haskell, but with a unique ability to describe entire distributed systems with a single program. And so it does, it does really neat stuff. Uh, for instance, your functions are very... Uh, so, so Joe Armstrong talked a lot about how uh, he wanted there to be like this global namespace for for functions that were just like a hat, essentially a function name probably should just be a hash of its AST because that's what it does. And um, then we could, we could share them. And Unison is, is kind of a path for that. And it's got a lot of programmer tools built into it for making that possible. And I think it's really neat. And I think it's, it's one of the few sort of current approaches at, at kind of solving that problem. That I, that I think are neat because uh, it's, it's a lot more, you can use it and, and you probably can't really use session types presently. So um, I, think it's, I think it's neat for that reason and also just, just good to wrap your head around something different people are doing. Cool. All right, the one I was going to share is for all of you people who may have come from a Windows background, I know a lot of developers are not currently, like the developers I interact with are either on Mac or Linux. Um, I know there are a lot of people out there who still use Windows as developers too. 
But this is for those of us who have moved on from Windows and you miss the days of defragging your hard drive. Like the serenity of watching it slowly go as it removes the sectors around. So, you know, because that's like, that's like serenity now kind of like a thing, right? So this guy made a, a using the Unity game engine, created a, a app or a kind of like a game called ZFrag. And it lets you manually defrag the drive if you want, or you can hit the auto defrag button and just let it run. And it includes sound effects, which have like the little like hard drive making the little clicking sounds as it's moving sectors around. And just like as it defrags your, you know, pretend hard drive because, you know, you're running on Mac or Linux and you don't actually have to do that. Uh, so I thought it was just kind of funny. Uh, I have no affiliation with it. It does prompt for donations, but there's a has like a, a no thanks link at the top. So you can still just check it out and play with it. So that's it for me. Chris, how about you? So I've um, recently been running more like with my feet on the road and I've never been a runner just like or a person who even liked running definitely not self-described as running but it was like this is what feels like the minimal amount of time i i need to spend just to you know maintain some semblance of health and like even just to placate my own sense of guilt <laughs> sitting around and, and uh coding all day and a friend of mine recommended this book to me and it's been awesome and i actually think i might be a runner now like i think i like it like i think i enjoy it uh which is very scary uh, change is, is not good. So this book is called Daniel's Running Formula. And it's like the third edition or whatever. It's not too much money. Uh, it's like 15 bucks or something like that. But it's great. It has way more math in it than like most of the so-called computer science books I have. And it uh, has tons of like tables and charts. And essentially, you just find where you are on the tables and the charts. And then he tells you what to go do. And it's amazing. It's the best like coach style thing ever. And, and for me as like a somewhat analytical person, um, it's deeply comforting to have that level of like guidance about what you actually should be targeting and like how long you should be running for and what your pace ought to be and all this kind of stuff. So if you're into that, uh, if, if you want to be converted as someone who might actually enjoy running, I recommend this book. So that sounds cool. It sounds like it uh, might help you uh, do something that might push yourself, but not push yourself to the point of injury. Is that kind of the goal? Yeah, it's it it exactly. Like he's you're right on the razor's edge of uh, of of pushing yourself too far. But no, it feels really good. And and he intentionally has all these kinds of like he has these like training routines. Like do these for four weeks, and here's the paces you need to run at based on. He has all. He's essentially like engineered velocity over O2 ingestion and all this kind of stuff. He was like the Olympic running coach or something. So he has these like million dollar like training facility or something. Um, but he just has tables. And so it's like, if you ran your last mile at this pace, here's what the number you are. And now you just look, use that number to look up how fast you actually ought to be running to make progress. Cool. It's pretty good. Awesome. Well, I had an awesome time talking with you, Chris. Thank you for coming on and taking some time and also setting the record straight on Bleacher Report and all the awesome uh, things you guys are doing. I'm, I'm excited to see where Norm is going and hopefully we maybe we'll check in with you a time in the future and see how things are going there. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.